Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, July 26th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Michelle Sandiford, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, a snapshot of the National Cybersecurity Strategy's implementation. Plus, TSA finishes work on a nifty new training center in the West. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the top leadership ranks in government are less diverse than the federal workforce overall, both by race and by gender. New findings from the Partnership for Public Service show that although diversity in the senior executive service has increased in the last 25 years, there's still lots of room for improvement. To add to the list of concerns, the majority of career SES employees are also getting close to retirement. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got details of a new SES report from the partnership's president and CEO, Max Steyer. I think there are two things that changed over time, and it's very helpful to see the, the 25 years of data here. Um, one is that you do see fewer younger folks in the SES today than you did certainly in 1998 and in earlier years. And the second, as you said, the retirement eligibility numbers are much higher, and uh, that's a problem. I mean, more broadly speaking, you can look at various elements of diversity here, and we're seeing less diversity, as we just noted in the generational realm, and we're seeing increased diversity in the racial and gender makeup of the, of the SES, which is good, but still underrepresented against the general population of federal civil servants and of the public. Speaking a little bit more about those demographics, about uh, gender and about race in the SES, why is that something that is significant or important to change? It's true in all organizational contexts that diversity of all kinds improves performance. And certainly uh, gender and racial diversity is an important element of the broader question of diversity. So having you know, a desire to perform at your very best organizationally, drawing from different experiences, different gender, different racial groups, different ages, um, all improves the ultimate outcome. Um, so that is one issue. I think there's an extra issue in the context of the public service, which is uh, as public servants and and as the primary responsibility being to be a steward of the public good, you know, having a government made up of a broad swath of our population um, is more representative of the people. And I think that's meaningful too. So diversity across the board, I think, is something that improves performance, improves the public's perception of public service more broadly, and is something that we should be keeping an eye on, which is part of the reason why we've done this, this report. And at the same time, I, one other thing I noticed from the report was that, you know, you have about 200 new SES members who are hired every fiscal year. Do you see that, you know, that combined with the number who are retiring or eligible for retirement, plus this kind of gap in diversity, do you see that as, you know, maybe an opportunity for agencies to, to change things? Yes, no question. The only um, friendly amendment I would make to this is that the SES would benefit from actually seeing more people coming from the outside into the SES. So, you know, 200 on average a year is not very many. Um, It is very important to grow talent within the government and to provide a pathway for high-performing career civil servants to make their way into the SES. But having an inflow of consequence of talent from the outside um, improves the diversity as well. And I think multi-sector experience is extremely important. So, you know, one of the things that I would 
highlight here is frankly how few folks from the outside actually come into those senior positions. It is especially important in a world of huge dynamism. So when you think about it, again, you see some increase in the number of IT SESers, but just in the sphere of technology, um, being able to draw on best-in-class experience from the private sector at the senior most levels is frankly very important to the performance of our government and to the services that the American public's receiving. So in, in, in our view, we believe um, looking to improve the recruiting from the outside is quite important. Another part of that possibly is where the SES members, where the SES workforce is located. And, it, you know, one thing I did notice from the report is that a lot of uh, SES members, career SES members live and work in the D.C. area, whereas you have the broader federal workforce, about 80 percent work outside D.C. You know, that's maybe just a product of the fact that you have SES members working at headquarters offices. But do you see that? as an issue or something that needs to change? So it's a very interesting question. Look, I think that most policymakers do not realize that, as you just said, 80% of the federal workforce is outside of D.C. The leadership of most agencies are in D.C. And I think there is a real benefit to having a concentration of leadership in one place. You know, the whole point of, of having a capital that was owned by no state, but was you know instead owned by the entire country, was an important element of the front end of our of our country to to create something that was committed to the larger public good, to the nation, and not to an individual state. I think that there are reasons why having you know in a single location top leadership able to be co-located is is quite helpful, especially in a world where we need to see multi-agency collaboration in order to deal with big problems. At the same time, we have this phenomenon of the pandemic that created, you know, a, a, a explosion of remote work and the possibility of, of working from elsewhere, you know, to the extent that there's benefit to having SESers outside of D.C., now there's actually a mechanism for them to do that quite easily with remote work where their jobs permit it. And obviously it is a case by case question. So the underlying issue is I'm not really concerned that there's such a concentration of SESers in the D.C. area. I think the benefit is that you want your senior leaders to be interacting with each other across the organizational lines of agencies as much as possible, and frankly, more than currently occurs. You don't see very much movement among the SES from agency to agency, and that's a problem. And to the extent you want to actually enable more SESers to be outside of D.C., remote work might be the better way of doing it. The report also breaks down SES by occupation, and there's been a huge jump in the number of SES members in IT positions. Is this something that was surprising or telling to you? And what does this mean going forward for the federal workforce? You would hope to see the workforce shift and change, even at the, especially maybe at the most senior levels, depending upon, you know, the organizational needs that we have. And technology is plainly the most significant change aspect of the management world that we've seen um, over the course of the last 25 years. So you would expect to see growth in IT. And my question, frankly, is, has there been enough of it? I'm not sure that we've seen, uh, you know, the, the extent of reshaping of uh, the occupational um, focus as, as we should. And uh, especially with the rise of AI, even beyond SESers who are in the IT occupational series, my view is that we should be exploring deeply the requirements of technology literacy that um, the rest of the SES were not in the IT occupational series ought to have to really be effective leaders. 
not just the SES, but certainly the SES as, as you know, the, the top of the pyramid. To be an effective leader in today's world, having that technology sophistication, I think is, is, is fundamental. You talked a little bit about, you know, why you put together this report, but if you can tell me, you know, what are you hoping that agencies or maybe members of the federal workforce are, should get out of this report? What are you hoping that they'll, they'll take away here? The reason for us doing this is that the career SES, frankly, are the, the foundation for, for our government. The original concept of the SES was of this top-level group of executives that would move across government to address our biggest and most consequential challenges. And uh, I don't believe that vision has played out and we need to return to, to that vision in order to, I think, have our government respond to the current set of challenges more effectively. You need to understand what you have. Um, that's the purpose of, of why we did this. So I would say that hopefully this will spur an enterprise perspective about what is it that we need and want out of our SES and what are the things that we can do to get there. Max Steyer is president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, speaking there with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. You can find Drew's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, TSA finishes work on a nifty new training center in the West. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. For the Transportation Security Administration, what happens in Vegas certainly does not stay there. TSA recently opened a new officer training center near the Las Vegas airport, and new hires train there take their knowledge all over the country. We got an update from TSA's Assistant Administrator of Training and Development, Kim Hutchinson, who spoke to Federal News Network's Tom Temin. So this grand opening was the second of two training centers, correct? That's right. We've got two big training centers that host our training for our newest employees, what we call our basic training program. All right. And tell us about the basic training program for TSOs, Transportation Security Officers. It looks kind of simple when you see them externally, but there's a lot going on there, isn't there? Absolutely. Yes. So you can imagine it's a pretty intense training program. It really does take place over the course of a new hire, a new Transportation Security Officer's maybe first six months on the job. So we kind of chunk it out in a couple parts. So it really actually starts at your local airport, which we call phase one. And that's where you really kind of, you know, you get your uh, airport ID and you really learn about what's going on locally. You do some training on some of the technology, but really not the advanced stuff. Once you've mastered that, and let's say uh, two to three months time, you go to one of TSA's academies, and that's the TSA Academy West, the new one we're talking about today. Once you do that, again, you've got another three weeks in training. The first week actually happens at your home station, but it's piped out of our academy. So it's taught by instructors, just like we're talking now in a WebEx setting. And that's where really we talk a lot about what it means to be a TSA employee, what it means to be a DHS employee, the culture of TSA, because you can imagine some of our newest offers didn't experience 9-11. So we want them to understand, you know, why their job is so critical in protecting the traveling public, what our mission is and so on. And they kind of preview some of the procedures. And then right after that, that week at that local airport, they head to either TSA Academy West 
which is located um, very close to Las Vegas Airport, or TSA Academy East, which is in coastal Georgia, um, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. So it really kind of depends on where you live, what training center you go to, even though you could go to either one. But generally, we started up the West Coast Training Center to be more convenient for our employees coming like from, say, the islands, from California. You can imagine it's a really long trip to get to coastal Georgia from, say, Guam. And we really wanted our officers to be ready to experience this really intense training program. So I think it really gets to, you know, the convenience for our employees, as well as just kind of student ready readiness. And at the uh, regional training centers at Training Center West, then it's residential. They're there and living there for the duration. They sure are. They're living in a hotel. They're all together for two weeks. Got it. And it sounds like from the way you describe the basic training, there's as much human relations and cultural inculcation as technical. Because when you think about it, TSOs, really, their toughest job is human relations. Absolutely. I think to really be a good TSO, like in many other jobs, you have to be a great communicator. And many times you don't really have a lot of knowledge on what's going on with that passenger before they hit the checkpoint, right? So you're going to experience all kinds of passengers. You're going to experience, you know, the business, seasoned business traveler who's been through that airport a million times. You might be experiencing a first-time traveler. It might be a teenager or a grandparent that hasn't gotten on a plane in a while. So really what we teach at the academies is how to deal with every possible passenger you receive, you know, at your checkpoints. And how versatile do you want TSOs to be? I'm thinking, you know, just as a flyer like everybody else, visible to the public, there's at least eight discrete functions you know, between the time you arrive until you get on the plane. But there's a lot that goes on you don't see, correct, in the offices, in the byways and labyrinths of the airports. That's right. And really, I think you have to kind of take on that role of TSO when you walk in the door, when you get out of your car or your bus from the airport, right? People are always, you know, engaging officers to say, well, where do I do? Where do I go? Or what can I bring on the plane? Or do I have to check my bag? So it's it's almost, you know, beyond your job at the checkpoint. It really does include all those pieces. So I think that's another piece to the Academy West where our officers are actually training in a checkpoint right next to a live checkpoint. So it's not some kind of a simulated classroom environment. You're literally, you know, you're hearing the airport announcement and noise while you're learning these these functions, which is much more, you know, realistic training environment to what your job's going to be. We're speaking with Kim Hutchinson. She's assistant administrator and chief learning officer for the Office of Training and Development at the TSA. To what extent are officers taught where they can use discretion? And here's what I mean. A thing goes through the scanner and there's lots of pictures of stuff. And obviously, if you see a pistol in there, well, you know, that raises the red flags and the person's arrested, et cetera, et cetera. But there are things that are not so clear cut. We've all experienced that use of discretion by officers. How do you teach them that particular skill? I think it starts with understanding the standard operating procedures, right? There are certain things you have discretion on and other things that you don't. My answer to that would be, you know, you do have a big network of people at the checkpoint. So if you're a new officer, say, coming out of training and you see something that you don't think it's a prohibited item, but you're not sure, you know, that's where we really teach this piece about you're part of a bigger team, right? So we really do want officers to focus on threats, obviously, and if they're not sure, to make sure that they engage other passengers. So there's discretion in some regards, but, you know, at the end of the day, SOB has to be followed. You've got a bunch of people around you to kind of help you get through the process. And describe the new facility in Las Vegas. Where is it in relation to the airport and what's in there? Is it mostly just spaces with desks and 
tables or what? It's a very modern looking building from the outside. It's 26,000 square foot facility. It's got six classrooms. It's got a couple of you know large multi-purpose rooms. It's got office space for our officers. And really, I think that one of the neatest things about this facility is you can literally see the airport, the tower of Las Vegas airport when you're in a training room. So you can walk. I don't recommend that, and especially this time of year, you know, but it's such a very close proximity. It's less than a mile from the airport. So I think that's another compelling thing while you're sitting there learning about what it means to be a TSO. You can literally see planes taking off and on, which we haven't experienced that at a training center before. So it's really kind of magical having all those pieces come together at the Academy West. Yeah, it's more interesting than that pyramid-shaped hotel that's kind of right there almost (laughs) at the end of the runway, I would say. I'd rather see planes than a pyramid-shaped hotel. (laughs) And is there testing throughout the process? In other words, do you have like uh, bags made up of sample items and see if they catch things and they're graded on that? Yes, absolutely. So just like any other, you know, classroom portion of training, you do have um, a couple of different tests. So our officers at the end of the two weeks, they go through a job knowledge test just to make sure they understand, you know, all the procedures, all the things they need to do um, when they're doing this job. And then there's an image test. So one of the core things we teach is x-ray. We spend a very good portion of this time looking at simulated images on a computer like we're on now, but also looking at images um, at these uh, real life checkpoints. You also have to take an image test, and uh, if you need, you know, some assistance, we've got some remedial training on the ground. And then after you go through the two weeks, you go back to your your, um, home airport, and you will then really more integrate on the particular um, equipment that you have at your airport and then take one final image test before you, you know, get certified as a TSO. So there's testing along the way. Yeah, it's interesting because the uh, screening machines are kind of like rental cars. No two are precisely alike. I mean, there's a bunch of different models of these things. And when new technology comes in, say some of the body scanners that, you know, that obfuscate the human being, but show what's in the pockets and so forth, how does that training get spread throughout the whole system as those machines get deployed? Yeah. So from, you know, the basic standpoint, we always try to have the latest equipment in our training checkpoints. So if you come from an airport that has this brand of CT that is the CT that you will be trained on at, at the academy. So that's a wonderful thing. Now, it's a little different when it, you know, shows up at your airport, essentially, you know, when we know when airports are going to get, so it's Las Vegas Airport is getting a new machine, you know, AIT, CT, whatever that may be. That's when um, our officers get trained basically by trainers at the airport. All right. And just a final question. Throughout a shift of a TSO, do they do the same thing for the entire time or do they shift from, you know, screening the people into the screening area, you know, checking the, the uh, boarding pass, et cetera, to watching what's going through in the scanners to whatever? Or do they rotate throughout the different jobs in a given shift? They do rotate. So um, you might start at that travel document checker where they look at your IDs and then move to the walkthrough, move to divestiture. So, yes, um, you know, basically every 20 to 30 minutes an officer will take on a different position. So that's just one of our challenges at the academies to really getting our officers confident and the expertise to do all of those things that you described. That's Kim Hutchinson, Assistant Administrator and Chief Learning Officer for the Office of Training and Development at the Transportation Security Administration. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, the Defense Department clarifies how to use other transaction authority, but first, a snapshot of the National Cybersecurity Strategy's implementation. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Congress authorized the creation of the Office of the National Cyber Director back in 2021, and the White House issued the National Cybersecurity Strategy earlier this year. So how's it doing implementing said strategy? Well, the Government Accountability Office looked to answer that very question with a snapshot of where things stand. To learn more, I spoke to Marisol cruz Kane, Director of the Information Technology and Cybersecurity Team at GAO. Well, back in September 2020, we first took a look at the previous administration's national cyber strategy and the implementation plan that came along with it, and we noticed some missing elements there. And when the new administration issued their strategy in 2023. We thought it was important that we looked at it, took a look at it the same way we took a look at the previous administration's strategy to look for the critical elements that GAO feel should be in a national strategy. So we were able to do that with the strategy itself since the implementation plan hasn't come out yet. And we wanted to just give our initial thoughts on what that strategy contained. And those initial thoughts, please. (laughs) Absolutely. So we have six critical elements of what we think a national strategy should have in it. And the strategy for the current administration identified its purpose, what the scope of it was, and the methodology that they used to come up with the strategy. It also outlined very clearly what the problem was. Cybersecurity has a very clear problem and what risks were involved. And then lastly, it really laid out how it integrated with other key cybersecurity documents like the executive order on cybersecurity and different OMB guidances that deal with cyber and how those were helping with the implementation of the strategy. But what we didn't find were specific milestones with dates that these all of the items that it had in it were supposed to be done by or performance measures. How are we going to measure how any of this was successful in the strategy? Another thing that we were looking for that we didn't find was a total cost for the efforts contained in the strategy. And then also, initially when we looked at it, we didn't find prioritizing how agencies were supposed to set their investments to achieve the goals in the strategy. And then lastly, specific roles and responsibilities. There were some areas that we found didn't have a specific agency assigned to it and kind of left it very vague who was going to be in charge of implementing those specific goals. Cybersecurity is a pretty malleable thing, and, and a lot of these goals were kind of abstract, you know, protecting cybercritical infrastructure. You know, how do, you, how do they quantify when a goal is reached when it comes to cybersecurity? I think that's one of the things we were saying that was missing. We didn't see any real performance measures there to say, okay, we've got our five pillars. You mentioned one being the critical infrastructure. They laid out five specific goals that they had within that larger objective. But what it is missing is how are we going to measure them? Who is going to measure them? And what are the specific tiny little steps that are going to be taken to achieve those overall goals? So what you're all basically looking for is more of a comprehensive plan rather than saying good things and hoping that they all kind of fall into place? Absolutely. There is no way that we can implement such a broad and comprehensive plan without specifics in there, specific steps they want the agencies to take, specific people who are going to oversee those steps. How are the agencies going to be responsible for allocating resources to those steps? Where are they going to get the money? Uh, What are they expected to do? How long are they expected to do it in? 
So what ONCD has told us is they're going to issue an implementation plan similar to the previous administration. And the latest date that they gave us for its release is mid-July. So we are kind of waiting to see if that's going to happen, but we're hoping that the implementation plan outlines these really specific nuances that we need to understand exactly how these larger, like you said, really broad goals are going to be implemented, who's going to help with that, and how the agencies are expected to allocate their resources and get those things done. Yeah, this is no small task, getting all of that together. Where did the administration say that they were kind of starting as a base? Is it just getting that implementation plan ready, or are they starting from critical infrastructure or starting from uh, you know, finding the bad actors? They told us that it's starting with the implementation plan. Um, we know that they're working with several key federal agencies to develop that implementation plan. A lot of the sector risk management agencies have been involved with ONCD and OMB in creating that implementation plan. And we're imagining it's going to cover all of the five pillars. I don't think they're going to start one and go one by one, um, but <laughs> that's remained to be seen. Um, we're waiting for that plan to come out so that we can take a look at it and see exactly how they've delineated it, how they're going to attack that. But they did take an important step by issuing a memo last month that came out on June 28th that did let the agencies know for fiscal year 25 that they should prioritize the five pillars in the strategy and that they were to submit to OMB in their fiscal year budget how they were going to do that. And then they were going to work with OMB and ONCD to give the agencies feedback on their priorities, see if they're identifying any gaps, how can they help them close their gaps. So they're really starting to try to get their guidance to align a little bit better with the strategy. And I think that will be even easier once the implementation plan comes out, if it does contain some of these specific details that GAO is looking for. And one of the other issues at hand is, speaking of the ONCD, there is currently no director of it right now. What does the leadership of the office look like at the current moment, and you know who's running day-to-day operations? Well, the previous cyber director resigned in June 2021, so since then we have the acting director, Pemba Walden, and she has been taking care of all of the day-to-day, so We have the plan going out under her. The implementation plan has been created under her. And as we mentioned in our snapshot, we really think it's time for a permanent cyber director to be appointed. It is very important that there is sustained leadership there. We've noted in several reports that leaders, in order to be effective, need to be in a position from three to five years. And in order to implement a major change initiative, which we see this strategy being, a leader needs to be in place from five to seven years. So we're hoping that we get a permanent director and they can be in for a longer period of time. Did the folks you all talked to at the office talk about how challenging it was to implement such long-term goals without having a permanent leader in place to direct the ship? Unfortunately, they did not. (laughs) We weren't really able to get too much information in that area, but I do know that it's been public that's, People on the Hill have been requesting that we get a permanent cyber director, and we are definitely in line with that and hope that that will help in the long run to have a consistent one leader that will be able to take this implementation strategy from its beginning to effectively implementing it. 
Yeah. And, and what does a successful implementation plan look like? Is it just having a s- secure atmosphere for X amount of years or just hoping that there are no major events that come across any agency in the near future? I think it looks like being proactive, finding these new methods like zero trust and different methods we've been using to not only react to things that have happened, but to detect things before they happen in the future. You really can't secure something by continuously just patching things that you've found. We really need to get into, you know, with CISA, CISA is putting out their national security advisories and security advisories, letting agencies know we've had these problems. Take a look at your system, evaluate where your system is so this doesn't happen to you. So we've got to get into this groove of looking forward. What could happen? This one thing, how does it relate to your system? How can you be proactive in protecting your systems from other incidents taking place? So it really looks like securing what we have now, but also continuously looking at your processes to make sure you're looking into the future and you're trying to protect from things that have not happened to you yet, but could. And also taking a look at our emerging technologies and how those fit into your agencies, but also how can we start using them securely so that we don't start using them and then something happens, and then we worry about security. So it's really taking a proactive stance. Marisol Cruz-Kane is the Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. You can find this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come on Federal News Network, the Defense Department clarifies how to use other transaction authority. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Other transaction authority acquisitions have become popular in the Defense Department and other agencies to the tune of billions of dollars a year. OTAs have guardrails against abuse of this method of buying. The Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment earlier this month released fresh OTA guidance that seeks to dispel what it calls some of the myths. Haynes Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince joined Federal News Network's Tom Temin with analysis. Zach, let's begin with the fundamental question. OTA guidance by the armed services individually and from the undersecretary has been around for many years, as it has been for a lot of the other agencies. Why do you think they issued new guidance now? Well, this is becoming an increasingly popular procurement vehicle, and there are a lot of open questions about how it is to be used. There have been different guides that have been out there. DOD had a guide, but it was growing dated. Uh, And the more that the acquisition community is using this type of purchase mechanism, the more they need concise guidance with examples, myth-busting, as DOD has done for procurement for many years, or OFPP did that, I guess, uh, 10 years ago with those uh, myth-busting one, two, and three. It's just important to have a single resource that you can turn to to understand how to set up the acquisition and how to administer it. I guess for the uninitiated, we should remind people that OTA means an acquisition that's not done under the Federal Acquisition Regulation or the Defense FAR, the DFAR. And it was initiated by NASA. Congress gave NASA that authority, I think back in what was it, 1959 or something like that, to be able to do this for the purposes of buying prototypes because there was no commercial equivalent out there 
and that's what OTAs are all about. Is that a pretty good synopsis? That's a great synopsis. Uh, it started back in 58. Well, maybe the act was called the Act of 58, but it was very, very close. Uh, and it ultimately has grown to reach other agencies. Uh, DOD now uses it a lot, usually used for research, for prototypes, and also for production. So it has a wide variety of potential uses. Right. And it could be that the new guidance came out because Congress keeps an eye on this, too. And they are probably super sensitive to, you know, the abuse that is at least potentially could happen under OTAs. I think it's a mix of concerns about potential abuse and excitement about the potential flexibility with this procurement vehicle that DOD can spur growth in the defense industrial base in ways that they really can't with traditional FAR, DFARS covered vehicles. All right. And so what is going on now in OTA? I mean, where do we see it happening? What are some of the spending levels? And is it all, it's not all DOD, but it's primarily there. It's a heck of a lot of DOD and I'm seeing it mostly in DOD world, but NASA still has OT authority. The Leave Homeland Security does. A few other agencies that might surprise you do. Energy has authority to use it in certain ways. It gets confusing because the statutory grants of authority differ slightly by agency. And so you really need to know what agency you're talking about. But in many respects, it is the Wild West. Because when you're dealing with a procurement, you know, traditional, far covered, you know what to expect. There are clauses that have to be there. And even if they're not in there, are going to be read in there as a matter of law. Then when you get into the OT world, you sort of scratch your head. Now, it's cost reimbursement. What does that mean? Are the cost principles applicable? Now, what rights does DOD have to audit? You know, what sort of payment mechanisms are they going to establish? What level of buy-in from, the, from industry are they going to mandate? Uh, it varies wildly. And these are not protestable. Is that correct? An OTA award? Usually not. There's a little piece in the guide that talks about protests and emphasizes that generally DOD would like them not to be protested. Agencies can set up their own mechanisms for agency level protests of OTs if they want them to be protestable, but usually no. And right there in the beginning of this guidance, number two on about this guide, the flexibility of OT agreements and their limited use across the Department of Defense has led to misunderstandings as well as several myths. A list of the common OT myths along with a discussion of facts are somewhere in the appendix they tell people to go to. What are some of the myths that have grown up that they're trying to knock down here? One myth is what actually applies to an OT. There is a belief in, within certain parts of the acquisition community that some elements of the FAR or DFARS do have to be read in or have to be included. Usually they don't. There are a few statutory exceptions, like the TikTok ban actually is required for OTs. Same with the Huawei ban and Kaspersky lab ban. So there are times where Congress gets really uptight about a particular uh, foreign actors and puts that into all acquisitions. But generally speaking, you don't have to have any FAR clause at all in an OT. We're speaking with attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. We're in the fourth quarter of the federal fiscal and people are worried about funds running out, lapse of appropriation, all of these things going on. And so a lot of contractors want a quick hit to make their numbers at the end of the year. And there's no time for full and open FAR competitions at this point, realistically, between now and the end of the fiscal year. To what extent is it kosher then to 
explore with your agency if you're a vendor, well, can we do this under an OTA? You could go that route, but they are limited in what can be done. They're really only for research, prototyping, or production. And there has to be some careful thinking by DOD on what they're authorizing and whether it falls within the statutory grant. So they don't want to just create this mechanism for avoiding full and open competition. Uh, this is only to be spurring these specific types of activities. And when you say production, it means production of that which was developed under the prototype with an OTA. You can't just go buy, you know, 67 printers because it's easy to do it with an OTA. That would be That's wrong. right. <laughs> That's an important caveat. They're follow-on OTs to uh, prototype OT agreements. And to what extent is it possible to use OTAs on existing GWAC types of vehicles that might have been established using FAR type of processes? My suspicion is there are very few circumstances where that would be appropriate. So it's direct government to that vendor. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it, you would need to be able to really justify how this is appropriate. You can't always do single source OTs either. For production in particular, you can have a sole source OT for production if it was a competitively awarded prototype OT. But otherwise, you are supposed to be soliciting as the agency a number of different offers. And is the theory behind using an OTA for production that even though it is production, it is nevertheless not commercial because it was created as a prototype initially under an OTA, and so there's presumably no commercial market for that which is being produced. Usually, there might be a commercial market, but it might be the type of circumstance where what DOD needs is slightly different, or DOD wants to get industry to focus on an area that they otherwise wouldn't. And so they'll come up with a complicated mechanism where there's more industry buy-in you know, the company has skin in the game. They'll get a benefit if this succeeds or a potentially absorb a loss in a way that a FAR contract wouldn't allow for. All right. So this guidance that just came out from the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment is 51 pages, no pictures or charts. So it's like all reading. What should people know about this? <laughs> it is very well drafted, frankly. You know, it, it is true. It is a lot of reading, and maybe lawyers will take uh, more from it than others. But it does a very good job of laying out, this is what an OT is. This is how you set up a procurement. These are the entities that can get involved. And it's broken up with great case studies of types of work that's been done through OTs that have been successful and what has made them successful. So you know, for every few pages, you have to slog through some arcane definitions. You then get to understand and practice what this actually is used for. And some of these case studies go back a few years. Here's one from 1994 for the Global Hawk drone. And so certain eternal truths never fade away, do they? <laughs> they don't. Some of them are more recent. You've got one where uh, performance only ended in 2022 for robotic servicing of geosynchronous uh, satellites, which is some really interesting cutting-edge tech. Attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. We'll post this interview along with a link to the OTA guidance at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. One of the first decisions IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel made as part of his four-month-long listening tour is focused on safety and stopping scammers. 
Werfel ended the longtime IRS policy of unannounced home visits by revenue officers seeking to collect tax debts. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me to discuss why this policy change is part of Werfel's long-term goal to transform the IRS. Jason, how are we doing today? Hey, Eric. All right. So why is the policy change necessary today more than ever? I think one of the things that Danny Wolfler heard during this listening tour, and he talked with employees, he talked with unions, he talked with citizens, really he talked with anyone who would talk to him about what's going on at the IRS. And what they heard time and again was these unannounced visits, these surprise visits were of growing concern. Wolfler talked about this earlier this week at a press conference. With the growth in scam artists, Taxpayers are increasingly uncertain who is knocking on their doors. For our IRS employees, there were fears about their own personal safety on these visits. I also learned that these concerns were shared by our partners at the National Treasury Employees Union, who have long advocated for increased safety for IRS employees. Again, IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel, one of the things he also offered, Eric, was really interesting. He goes, what's the current environment today is much different than the current environment five or 10 years ago. Knocking on someone's door, ringing their doorbell just is not something that people are as comfortable with. And there's a lot of concerns about IRS employees and their safety. And what's it feel like when they do a home visit these days? And of course, you know, Eric, NTEU, the National Treasury Employees Union, which represents their employees, has pointed out that all the rhetoric around IRS and the government has really not helped the situation either. So why was the IRS conducting surprise visits in the first place? I didn't even know they were still doing those. (laughs) And I think that's what's surprising to a lot of people. I think that's why also Werfel said, we're going to end this right away. This is not something we're going to phase out. We're just going to end it. And I I think it comes from just a decades old policy. I think it's it's just the way things have always been done. Werfel describes kind of what these home visits were like and, and why they were doing them. Under the old policy, The IRS typically assigned about 100,000 cases to revenue officers each year. While we don't have the specific number of unannounced visits that occurred, it was a routine part of the employee's job to take this step. I also want to note that IRS auditors, our revenue agents, do not make these kinds of unannounced visits. This means that today's announcement will bring all of our civil side employees into policy alignment on visits. We have about 2,300 revenue officers, so this change today will affect a lot of employees and will be another step forward in our agency's transformation work under IRA and the Strategic Operating Plan. Again, IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel talking about how also the policies are different, right? When you talk about auditors are different than revenue agents, talk about people who do these home visits versus people who don't. And there's not on the civilian side, non-law enforcement, and let's be clear about this, these revenue officers are not law enforcement officers, why they were doing home visits and some uh, other parts of the IRS weren't. So I think part of this as well is this is a policy that maybe just grew over time and it was time to really rethink it. And and that's one of the things, again, Danny Werfel's heard time and again during this listening tour. Speaking with Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, so what's going to take the place of these unannounced visits to homes and businesses if they're not going to do that anymore? Dana Werfel has been clear to say, listen, we still need to deal with these issues. There's still unpaid taxes, unfiled tax returns that we have to deal with. So we said, listen, we have a better policy and all that new process, if you will, will be listed on the IRS.gov website in the coming days. But he described what the new approach will be like. We will be replacing these unannounced visits with mailed letters to schedule meetings. Revenue officers will make contact with taxpayers through an appointment letter known as a 725B, 
and schedule a follow-up meeting. Here's another advantage of this decision. This will help taxpayers feel more prepared when it is time to meet. Taxpayers whose cases are assigned to a revenue officer will now be able to schedule face-to-face -face meetings at a set place and time. They will have the necessary information and documents in hand to reach resolution of their cases more quickly. The other thing Daniel Ruffle really said was there will be occasion very few times that a home visit will be required. However, he said mostly besides the letters sent through the Postal Service, there's also the use of secure electronic communications through the IRS website. And additionally, he said, we're going to really improve the technology, the mobile apps, the, the website technology too, so to make communication even easier. Eric, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to be uh, get one of those letters from the IRS telling you either you didn't pay your taxes or you they can't find your taxes. I unfortunately got one recently and I logged on, went through the process. It was very easy, very secure. I'm not saying they're perfect by any means. I'm just saying this is my own personal experience of having to, unfortunately, getting one of those letters that said there's something wrong with my taxes. And so, so I think that's where they're pushing. They do realize not everybody will have online access either, and they're going to have more Saturday hours at walk-in centers, more call centers so people can call and talk to representatives. So I think there are many things they're going to try to do to, again, collect those debts, deal with unpaid taxes, but not have to do these unannounced surprise home visits. I did get one of those letters a few years ago, and I found that uh, things ran a bit smoother when you were paying them money. So, <laughs> so yeah, so for a positive experience, yeah, when you have the money to pay them and, you know, that process goes smoothly. But what about the folks who are still dodging them? How else are they planning to uh, conduct oversight and hold citizens and businesses accountable for paying their taxes? No surprise, one of the big things they're doing is taking money from the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, they got a lot of money, and uh, we know Congress is trying to claw some of it back. But with the money they do have and they're spending now, they're really looking at these changes that are coming. And one, one of those big changes are on data and analytics. Again, Werfel talks about why this move towards using better data, more analytics is really important to, again, replacing these unannounced visits. The better we can do at using data the more we can focus our resources on individuals and organizations that are evading taxes versus engaging with, with honest taxpayers. We want more and more in an increasing way when we look into a tax issue to have greater and greater confidence that we have really good reason to look into it because the data is pointing to a real issue. The better the data, the better our analytics, the more accurate we're going to be, and therefore, the more often when we're reaching out to a taxpayer, we're reaching out to one that is in a significant tax issue versus an honest taxpayer. So a key part of modernizing the IRS is improving the way in which we are leveraging data to do our jobs better. Again, IRS Commissioner Dan Norfolk speaking to the press earlier this week, uh, making the announcement around ending the policy of unannounced visits. And why the data and analytics side of it really will be helpful. Worf also brings up this idea of one of the fundamental goals of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights is to provide taxpayers or citizens access and avenue to you know resolve their issues quickly and completely. And he goes, that's a lot of different channels. So if they can improve their electronic means, they can have, you know, again, better data, better analytics, better technology, hire more people. They're really trying to look at all the different pieces and parts they can bring together 
to not only ensure people are paying their taxes, but give them better customer experience, better customer service. And, and I think this change of this unannounced visits change, this decision not to, to end this decades-long policy is all part of, as you heard Warfel say earlier in our discussion, Eric, part of this transformation that's it's currently happening across IRS. All right. And this is Mr. Werfel's first major move as IRS commissioner or first major policy change. I'm sure there'll be more to come. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, thanks for giving us all the details. My pleasure. And you can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.